first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and saw, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down and to look in and saw that the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been laid on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, we saw, and believed. For yet he did, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbanai, which means teacher. She said to her, Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the father to my father, your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Okay, so that's our story for today. And I, I love this story because it's so human. It's, it's very emotional. It's, it's complex. Uh, and I hope that we feel that this morning. I hope we feel that emotional resonance. Um, often when we come to church on Easter, and I feel like we fulfill our religious and familial obligations to, to do so as good Christians on Easter, so congratulations to you all. Uh, but I think the tendency when we come and gather on Easter is to just think of it as a miraculous event that happened a long time ago in a distant land, or perhaps we don't even really think about the details very much. Uh, we sing songs. Um, we take photos of ourselves because, face it, we all look really good. I mean, you guys look really good. So, you know, we take Easter photos. Uh, maybe you make an Instagram post, hashtag he is risen, <laughs> which as of Thursday had over 1.1 million hashtags. Uh, and maybe you're one of them. That's fine. You know, we're a very liberal and accepting bunch here at Mission Hill. So we even have room for cheesy and glib Christian sayings. You know, you're in, you're in, you're in good company, people. Um, but Richard Rohr uh, points out uh, when he's trying to communicate, uh, you know, what is, what is at the heart of Easter? What is Easter really about? And he says it like this. Easter isn't celebrating a one-time miracle as it only happened in the body of Jesus and that we're just all here to cheer on Jesus. I think last week I called this uh, concept like Super Bowl Jesus, right? Like we just go and we're like, good job, Super Bowl Jesus. Like, you know, you did it again. Way to go. Uh, so this morning, I hope that we move beyond 
um, just an intellectual agreement uh, of the sort of he is risen language, or just an uncritical examination of a beautiful story. Much of Christianity is rooted in whether or not you intellectually believe that certain things happened, right? Even though the gospel authors, like I said, were much less concerned with um, like exact history or finding specific dates uh, for things, uh, Luke has two ascensions, for instance, uh, one at Easter and then one 40 days later. Um, Luke is the only one that actually talks about uh, there being 40 days of Jesus appearing to, and so that's where we get that from the church calendar, is sort of the 40 days after Easter of um, these resurrection appearances of, of Jesus only happens in, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, like I said, the Gospels don't even share uh, a, just a cohesive uh, resurrection narrative. Um, so if we can, you know, just maybe shake loose the bounds of um, all thinking of Easter as something that we should intellectually agree to. Because um, I think it's harmful if year after year, this is where we remain as Christians. It's just people that gather to intellectually agree that something happened in history. We gather and say, he is risen, risen uh, because that's our church's tradition or our belief in a historicity of stories, which are fine, but those don't necessarily lead to transformed lives for each of us here and now in a transformed world uh, that proclaims true hope and resurrection and new life. Uh, Marcus Borg says it like this, In Easter, God has said yes to Jesus and no to the powers that executed him. Easter is not about an afterlife or necessarily happy endings. Easter is about God's yes against the powers who had killed him. So a few moments, let's look at this interesting and dynamic story and look for seeds of transformation for each of us and for our world. And I know some of you might be like, Ryan, I just really wanted my classic Easter. You know, I wanted to order what I always order, you know, uh, sit in my usual seat and enjoy my Easter. But I'm not going to give you the satisfaction to enjoy your Easter because it's always up to me to... I think I said that to somebody yesterday. It's like, uh, yep, Mission Hills, I just aim to disappoint. So there you go. Uh, so hopefully I will do that again. Um, so in the story of John, it's beautiful. It begins in darkness. And maybe uh, you had a job or, or something that you had to wake up really early, and you know what that morning darkness feels like, that morning darkness, like knowing what that smells like. I used to have to wake up at uh, 4.45 for cross-country practice every morning in high school. So I'm very familiar with the, the smells and, and uh, the feeling of just like, oh, I don't want to get up and just being in that darkness. And this is where Mary, this is the environment that Mary Magdalene is at um, by herself at the tomb Easter morning. She's in the darkness and she's been a disciple, a dear friend. She's been with Jesus through all of his teachings and healings uh, signs in crucifixion, and here she is now at the tomb in the dark. And she realizes that Jesus is, is gone. She immediately darts off to tell Peter and the beloved disciple. And then I love how, like, the men uh, come in just to confirm, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's not here. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, like, <laughs> they really needed the, the men to, to mansplain that to, to Mary Magdalene. <laughs> 
uh, women are usually right. I think we, if you don't hear anything else from me this morning, just hear that. Women are usually right. Um, and and so, so Mary, she gets something that these other disciples uh, don't get. Because what do they do? They just go home. They just go home. Like, that's all they do. They, like, they go like, yeah, he's not here. And then they just like go home. But Mary, she stays. She stays and she cries. She just stays there and, and cries. Um, and I often think when we're uh, overwhelmed or confused, uh, depressed, I think there's a tendency for, for all of us to just run home, to, to suppress whatever it is that we don't want to go through. So we go home, we go out, maybe play some loud music, bury ourselves in work, uh, return to old habits, our old ways. Um, but we don't stick around. And Mary sticks around. She sticks around, and she allows herself to, to cry, to grieve, to go through um, whatever it is that she's, she's going through. She recognizes uh, what we know as, as people that live 2,000 years later. Um, she stays. Uh, she has lost her friend, her teacher, to a violent and cruel state execution. And she's just, she's worn out. She's exhausted. She's confused at why the body is missing. And in this moment, there's no easy, he is risen affirmation, right? Like, she's confused. She's, she's grieving. Um, but in, like, a movie scene, like, she, she sees these angels, right? And, and she asks them a question, like, where, you know, where is he? Um, and I would love to do, like, a, like a three-minute, like, indie movie of this scene and, like, put some really, like, emotional music behind it. Uh, yeah, so if anybody can help me do that, that'd be great. Um, I'm looking at you, Jason. So, uh, because this is a, a really interesting scene. She, like, turns around. She sees this gardener, and she sees Jesus. Uh, she doesn't know that it's him. And he's, like, you know, I'm assuming he's, like, got his hands in the dirt. He's digging around. Maybe he has a shovel. Uh, but it's this guy. He's a dirty gardener. And he's the only one around. So she thinks, you know, maybe he knows what happened. Maybe he knows where the body is, or maybe he, he somehow took it away. Um, but Jesus is Jesus here, but not Jesus, right? He's, he looks different. He's in a different form, which we we often see in the gospels that, um, people don't recognize the risen Christ at first. Like you think about the road, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, they like, they don't recognize that it's him, but it's him. And here, here Jesus is taking the form of a gardener. And when the gardener calls Mary's name, she, she gets it. She knows who this person is. And she's, she responds in joyous ecstasy, teacher, rabbi. And then what, is the, what does the gardener say? I think this is like so interesting. The gardener says, what almost like sounds kind of harsh, the gardener says like, don't hold on to me. Um, some translations are, are, you know, don't touch me. But I really like the phrase, don't hold on to me. Uh, let me go. And what a strange thing for, for gardener Jesus to say in this moment. And I think we've held on to Jesus a little too much in Christianity. We've turned Jesus into an idol of our worship, a scapegoat for our sins, a bearer of our anxieties, a big other that will bring us safety and security and a decent retirement if we do the right things. We claim, we claim hold of Jesus. Jesus is on our team justifying our actions, confirming our politics. And Jesus says, don't let me go. Don't hold on to me. Let me go. 
And it's much easier to hold on to this kind of Jesus than to let him go. And it seems counterintuitive for your pastor on Sunday morning, on Easter morning, to say, don't hold on to Jesus. But I think I can say it because Jesus said it. So don't hold on to me. But it's, a, it's an actual, I mean, it's a counterintuitive move that is a deeper embrace of life and resurrection and hope than uh, the kind that just clings on to Jesus as an idol of our, our worship and affection. And when Mary says, teacher, teacher, his response is, don't hold on to me in that same way. There's new resurrection life to be experienced, um, to be had as a community going out into the world, transforming it. So this kind of don't hold on to me is simply the breaking of an Easter idol that prevents us from embracing the life that Jesus was calling his disciples into. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus says it like this, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys life. But if you let it go, reckless with your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. And I think Gardner Jesus is just saying this in a relational way in the moment in this garden outside the tomb. Don't hold on to me. If you hold on to your life, you'll, you'll lose your life. Anyone who loses your life, you actually will gain it. Jesus' wisdom realizes that in letting go, there is actually a radical embrace of love in the expression of love that there is always new life. It's interesting that we don't know anything else that happens um, in the story of Easter. It's just Jesus says that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to send to my father and your father. Then I'm going to send to my God and your God. And Mary doesn't sit down with Jesus. She doesn't say, what do you mean? Like, what's going on? Like, that's kind of cryptic. You know, you're a gardener and, uh, you know, I get that you're Jesus. But no, she... She just runs away. She runs away to tell the other disciples. The tradition in John, uh, as an author, later says that the author says, God is love. Not an idol, but an actual verb, an expression of our life in love. The very emptying of ourselves and letting go in love, is God. So can we agree maybe this morning that there's something powerful happening in this resurrection story that is more meaningful than all of us agreeing whether or not it happened or how it happened or uh, where Jesus is or, or focusing on the tomb with the cool font, you know, he's risen. Um, there's something really, really powerful happening in this story that is also happening here and now within each and every one of us. Like I said earlier, uh, Richard Rohr says it like this, resurrection is about the whole of life. The whole of creation is about history and every human who's ever been conceived, sinned, suffered, and died. Every animal that has lived and died a tortured death. Every element that has changed from solid to liquid to ether over great expanses of time. It is about you and it is about me, it is about everything. That this resurrection, life, is happening here and now. 
that it was something that uh, uniquely happened in this mystery of Jesus, Jesus as gardener in this moment with his disciples and, and his, his friend Mary. And he says, don't hold on to me. Think of your favorite movie or your favorite book. Um, I would doubt that you love it because the book exists. You love it because you love returning to the story. You love what the story does to you, how it changes you, how it changes the way you live. And this is the, this is the power of the resurrection story every year as we continue to look at it again and again, is that these stories have power to change us, to transform us, that God is actually working in our lives right now, in this moment, in, in asking and in inviting us to, to embrace new life to not hold on to um, certain uh, religious ideals or uh, doctrines, but to, to leave those behind and embrace a new kind of resurrection life. So I want to close with, with a, a little parable. And then, uh, and then we'll all be invited to, uh, to take communion together as a community. So... There's a, a parable of people that lived in a small town. And people would come in from all over to line up and ask this wisdom teacher, a sage, their deepest and most difficult questions. And the older the man got, the more respect that he gained from his community. And the more his reputation spread and the line to speak with him seemed longer and longer. And one young man decided that he wanted to find a way to trick the old man. So he came up with, with a plan. He waited for hours to speak with him. And it was finally his turn. The young man said to the sage, I hold behind my back in each of my hands two baby chicks. If you are so wise, why don't you tell me whether the baby chicks in my hands are alive or dead? If you answer correctly, I will recognize your wisdom and reputation and it will spread even beyond what it already has. But if you answer incorrectly, I have finally proven you are a fraud and you are not wise. And the old man thought about it for a few seconds and replied, Do you think I'm a fool? I know that those chicks you have in your hands are alive, and you're ready to squeeze the life out of them if I say that they are alive to show me that the two chicks are dead. And if I tell you they are dead, you will spare them both and reveal them to be alive. And if I say one is dead and one is alive, you will simply do the opposite. And the crowd around them was astonished. And the young man walked away, discouraged that he'd been publicly exposed as having attempted to defraud the wise teacher. But when the teacher advised the crowd, he said, do not judge the young man, for his youth is to blame for his resentment for me. But there is a deeper truth in this lesson for you to discover. And the wise man began to walk away. And the crowd began to chatter, asking each other, what is the truth that we are supposed to learn, not to challenge your wisdom? And the wise man turned around and said, the lesson is that the truth is always in your hands. So this morning as we move into communion, it is our custom to take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. And everybody is invited at Mission Hills to take communion together. But as we take the, the, the bread in our hands and we experience dipping it into the cup, 
May we all awake to the Easter truth that resurrection life is indeed in our hands. Let's pray.